Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we have on the line Dr. J. Richard Middleton, who is a professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary. Today we're going to be talking about your 2014 book called A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology, which I think is a wonderful book. It might be within the top five theological books that I would suggest that people read. Can you tell us about yourself? Uh, as you can probably tell by my accent, I wasn't born in the U.S. I'm a Jamaican. I immigrated to Canada, then the U.S. later, and I've been living and teaching here 20 years now. I'm married to grown sons. I became a Christian when I was very young, and I've been shaped by the church. I want to follow Christ. I want him to be my Lord and Savior in all that I do. Uh, academically, I have been trained in theology, philosophy, and Old Testament studies. And I'm very committed to using the academic life for the sake of the church and for ordinary people in the world, that we don't um, do academics in an ivory tower. So I've taught the Bible in um, churches and campus ministry as a college professor and now as a seminary professor. Excellent. So today we're going to be discussing A New Heaven and New Earth. This is your book, and it's somewhat about eschatology, but it's about so much more. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the theme of the book? So, I mean, I, I think I would say that the, the basic impulse behind this book is to help Christians understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't take us out of the world to some ethereal other realm, but the gospel addresses our life in this world. So there is a this-worldliness to authentic biblical faith. So the book addresses that, that God created the world and sustains this world by his compassion and power. And that the Bible demonstrates God is interested in ordinary mundane life, what we call the secular. And mm -hmm. the book addresses some of that and going through how the Bible in the Old Testament deals with the concreteness of families and language and agriculture and technology. And that all of this is meant to show that God desires shalom and blessing in human life to restore what is good that sin has fractured. And God has been working to bring redemption in the history of Israel and the church and climactically through Jesus in his incarnation, the word made flesh in his death and resurrection, that God wants to reconcile to himself this world, this cosmos that God so loves, as John 3.16. And the mission of the church is to live out as Christ's body by the power of the Holy Spirit, a full-fledged holistic covenant life wherein all that we do we manifest the glory and presence of God. So ultimately, the book's about eschatology, but eschatology is meant to show that the direction that history is going, that God's purposes are going, is to redeem the world, to bring reconciliation and restoration to human life and this earth in, in all ways we could possibly think of. There's more ways that God wants to redeem the world than we've ever imagined in our philosophy. If I may misquote Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. That book is basically saying that the Bible, it's not an escape capsule. It's not we're trying to escape this world. In the end vision, the God's starting vision was this holy, godly earth. The whole Bible, the whole message is this restored earth and not an escape and uh, a dissolution of the earth. So I, I thought your premise was amazingly well written. Just just your evidence is very detailed, and you go through a ton of these verses, but you also cover the plot of the Bible. And if I could read a quick passage from your book, I think it kind of sums it up pretty nicely. I'll read. 
In the context of a failed human project, since sin with attendant violence has impeded and distorted the human calling to be an imago d on earth, an image of God, God intervenes in history to set things right. The initial move in this redemptive project is the calling of Abraham and his descendants, Israel, out of the now diversified human race, which has become the nations or families of the earth, Genesis 10. The purpose of this calling or election is that, that they might be new agents or helpers precisely to impact the human race, the original agents, in the fulfillment of their original calling. You detail the overall plot of the Bible, and then you talk about various subplots in the Bible, because there's certain conditions that change, and then God responds appropriately. Mm -hmm. So would you like to elaborate on that, and then just talk about some of these plot twists that we find when reading the Bible? Okay. So the the general way that I think about the story of Scripture, the plot underlying that story, is, as many have put it this way, creation for redemption, and some add consummation. Though I, I want to clarify what that, how, how that's different. So, so God brings the world into being with an intent, not a purpose for this world. He wants human beings in this world to be his image and likeness, to represent him, to manifest his presence by the way they rule the earth and, and organize and develop culture to the glory of God. But we use this genuine power God has given us to uh, rebel against God, which results in injuring ourselves and doing great violence towards others and uh, corrupting the earth. The flood story says that the human violence so filled the earth that the earth was ruined. The Hebrew word is shachat. So it's usually you break a jar, it's shattered. It actually kind of sounds like that. And, and humans ruined the, ruined the earth. And so God intervened by calling Abraham, one man from the nations, through whom God is going to bring about a miniature human race, a microcosm of what humanity was to be, and Israel was to live according to the Torah or the laws of God, to, to be an, an alternative society that drew people back to God, to bring blessing to the, all the human race. And of course, Israel has lots of ups and downs along the way. So we can talk about plot twists. For example, the first plot twist, of course, is sin. You know, it's not part of God's intention, but God is working to address sin. But then Israel ends up in bondage in Egypt. So God sends Moses as the deliverer to bring Israel back out of Egypt so they can have their own land and they can be restored. But their, their continual sin ultimately leads to God sending the prophets and the people disobey and they end up in exile. And God's amazing response to exile is not just to bring Jesus and bring us out of exile into the new creation, but he actually uses the historical situations that, that the people of God go through to give them insight. For example, one of the problems that the, the nation of Israel had was they were to have been God's alternative people in the world. But they ended up being just like everybody else. One nation jockeying for power and, and privilege in, in military contention with other nations. And they end up in exile because they're actually a small nation and their empires are on, <laughs> like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on. They get stepped on. And it's during the exile, you get this amazing insight that comes, that's implicit in earlier scripture, but it comes out later. So the revelation of God comes through exile. But Israel is to be a light to the nations through their suffering. They're to be God's suffering servant in the world. And of course, this, the ultimate suffering servant is Jesus, who is the representative of Israel. He does what Israel isn't able to do. And so the, the whole motif of suffering servant that brings redemption actually comes in the exile. And then Jesus is God's 
perfect image. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is the teacher. He manifests all that God wants for human beings. And he comes to fight the evil one, destroy the works of the devil, to die and rise again for us. So the incarnation culminates in the resurrection, where God brings new life out of death. I mean, who'd have thunk that God was going to do that? It wasn't so clear from the Old Testament that God's going to take all the evil of the world into himself like poison and suck it out of the world to give us back redemption. Now, that's not really a very nuanced theory of atonement, but that's basically what atonement is. That God has entered history to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to bring redemption, to start a process of transformation. And then the church, as a body of Christ, is meant to continue that ministry and to manifest what God, what Jesus began. We are the Jesus people. And we are in all of our life, whether it is in the gathered church, in the institution of the local assembly, or the denominations that we are part of, or it's just the individual Christians in whatever they do. That's the body of Christ. In everything, every Christian does, we manifest the coming of the kingdom of God, which is destroying the works of the devil, basically. To bring about goodness, justice, blessing, shalom, until that day when Christ returns to complete this process with the new heaven and the new earth. To me, that's the basic plot. Maybe I'm getting excited about it, but I think it's amazing. I think it is extremely exciting. So let's talk a little bit about eschatology. This book, the subject's eschatology. That's what brought me to this book. I was searching for eschatology about the restored earth, something that I believed before I came to this book. But I was looking to see if anyone had written about that. And here your book was, and it's amazing. But the book's about eschatology, this final vision for the earth. So can you talk about how the plot leads to the eschatology that's talked about in this book? How much time you got? <laughs> so I'm not sure where to start with that. I think um, there's different ways you can look at it. You can say that God's initial purpose is to have humans living in the world fully in all their cultural manifestations, doing what's right, living well. And eschatology is a restoration of that. So in the sense that there is a a unity between the beginning and the end. The end brings us back, not to the initial state of the world, but to the initial intent God had, which was never fully manifest because of sin. So God's intentions for the world get manifest in eschatology. That's one way I would, I would say that. You can look at lots of different, different biblical texts to begin to um, intuit that this is the direction things are going. The, the explicit doctrine of the resurrection, that is God is going to restore bodies to what they're meant to be, is not very clear in most of the Old Testament, but it's implicit that God wants to bring about goodness after destruction. And so in certain texts within the Old Testament, you get in, intuitions of resurrection. You get, for example... Ezekiel's vision in chapter 37 of the Valley of Dry Bones. Just a vision of the restoration of Israel after exile. Israel is pretty much dead. They're in exile. They've lost it. But God's going to get the bones back together, put flesh on the bones, put sinews on the bones, put skin on the bones, and then breathe his spirit in. And his people will come back to life. That's not yet maybe the literal doctrine of resurrection, but it starts to, to, to get the idea that God is going to bring life out of death. Nothing can prevent God's purposes. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, between, Eze- between Ezekiel and the New Testament, the doctrine of resurrection has become full-fledged in Judaism. Um, the Sadducees didn't really believe in it, but most Jews did. 
that God is going to bring, even after death, his people back to the purpose that they were made for, to rule this earth as his emissaries in glory and in blessing. And that's what resurrection is. But of course, where are you going to be resurrected? Well, resurrection requires land. So all the Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of God's people start with, they'll come back to the land. You might know that the Hebrew word for land, Eretz, is the same word for earth. So God's going to bring his people back to earth. And we're going to stand on terra firma again. And that's what God's purposes culminate in. Absolutely. So the modern Christian, most Christians you talk about, they all they'll talk like, oh, that's... Uh... Let's ask Jesus into our hearts so that when we die, we will go to heaven. There, there's illustrations of angels with wings on clouds just strumming away. And uh, mm -hmm. this is not one that we really find in the Bible. So can you uh, briefly give us an overview of biblical eschatology as found in apocalyptic texts, in a text about uh, the day of the Lord, and so forth? Mm -hmm. I would make a distinction between apocalyptic text and eschatological text. Eschatology is the broader category of the vision of the future. Apocalyptic is a certain kind of literature that has some weird imagery and so forth, but not all the, the, the eschatological texts have this strange imagery. Mm -hmm. um, and, I can, and I can do a lot with the Old Testament, but let me just go to the New Testament. Some of the key texts that have really helped me are things like um, in Peter's preaching in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3, and he speaks of the, the renovation or the restoration or the renewal of all things that's coming. And he says that's what the prophets of old predicted, the renewal of all things. Yeah? Um, and then you get the epistles of Paul in, in Ephesians 1, that God's going to bring together all things in heaven and on earth and gather them up in Christ, whether, whether things in heaven or earth. And Colossians 1, Paul says that God will reconcile to himself everything in heaven and on earth. The assumption is that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Things have gone out of whack. There is enmity, there is evil, there is corruption, and God's going to bring things back to the direction they should have been moving in. Uh, all things, that's pretty comprehensive, right? And the Hebrew is, the, the Greek there is either panta or tapanta, the everything, the all. And God's going to bring, what did God make? Well, God made the heavens and the earth. And what's God going to redeem? the heavens and the earth. And so you get these other texts like um, 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21 where we saw a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. It is a renewed world. And in this new world, there is going to be righteousness at home. That's the way Peter puts it. Righteousness would dwell in this world. Right now, righteousness is a stranger in the world. Righteousness is an alien. And those who seem to take possession of the world don't seem to be righteous. But one day, God is going to bring back the world to the way it was meant to be, which has never really been that way, because we've corrupted it. Um, one of my other favorite New Testament texts is Paul speaking in Romans 8 about all creation. Creation itself, kathesis is the word he uses, it is groaning in its bondage to decay. And it is awaiting the redemption of the children of God. Because when we, as a church, find our final redemption, then God will have put in place those who could really rule the earth righteously. And creation is waiting for righteous people to take dominion again. And dominion, of course, is not about domination, not about oppression. Dominus, our Lord, Jesus Christ, he's the true Lord. And how did he exercise dominion? By giving his life for us. 
So when Christians finally are redeemed by the new humanity in, in the eschatological vision of the New Testament, then we can begin to live out what it means to be human in a way that treats the earth rightly as a companion. This is our home, and we have been treating the world terribly, treating each other terribly, treating the animals terribly, treating the physical world terribly. So uh, God's purpose is that life would be restored to the way it was meant to be. Revelation 21, you mentioned that, and that's just that's a, just a very interesting image of uh, Jewish eschatology, where John sees the new Jerusalem as coming down out of heaven, and then it merges with the earth, and then it talks about God dwelling with man and wiping away the tears from their eyes. There will be death no more, and God dwells with man. And yes. it's, just, it's just the imagery is fantastic. But when I'm reading Revelation, I see a lot of parallels with Old Testament texts, especially with uh, like Isaiah or Daniel. So what are some of the Old Testament texts which also reinforce this type of eschatology? Well, I think that um, the main one that, that, that Revelation 21 would be drawn on is Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. And that text, which is actually in its original context, simply a text about the res- restoration of Israel after exile. They have come back to the land. Um, God is going to delight in Jerusalem. Um, you know, if you read the prophetic literature, God didn't delight in Jerusalem. He brought judgment on it. He's going to delight in Jerusalem and his people. People will dwell securely in the land. It will be, um, if you live to be a hundred, you'll be thought to be living a, a short life because people live really long. It's not yet eternal life, the way we think of it. Um, but it's, uh, they will build houses and they'll be able to live in them. The Babylonians won't come and destroy your houses and take you to exile. Mm-hmm. You live securely. And the animals will be in good relationship with humanity, and there'll be safety. My people will do what is right. And that's going to be so radically different. It's like a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I think that's probably just hyperbole in the Old Testament. By the time you get through Second Temple Judaism into the New Testament, it has become a cosmic redemption. So it's not so clear you have a cosmic redemption in the sense of um, you know, resurrection, eternal mm-hmm. life in the Old Testament, but it's moving in that direction because it's, it's progressive revelation. When, when, one of the interesting things about Revelation 21, there are actually two that I think are really crucial to think about. One is that throughout the Old Testament, God is said to dwell in heaven and his throne is in heaven. Now, when we say heaven in the modern church, we often think of this immaterial dimension. It's never that in the Old Testament. When God created the world, he created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are simply that part of the cosmos that we don't live in. God lives in heaven. That's a metaphor saying God is beyond us. God is transcendent. Yet, the fact that God is in heaven, anyone on earth can pray to God. God is connected intimately to every person in the world because he's in heaven. Now, we're also told in the Bible that he dwells somehow in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But if God only dwells in the Holy of Holies and you were in Babylon, how could you pray to God? But God's in heaven. So God's actually more universally accessible. What's fascinating is Revelation 21 is the first time in the Bible we're told that God's throne is on earth. His throne is no longer in heaven. When Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth, God also comes to earth and lives with us permanently on earth because sin has been eradicated and sin has been blocking the full presence of God. So God's been in heaven, transcendent, away from us. God's going to be fully imminent. In Isaiah chapter, I think it's 66, 
or it could be 64 chapter either before or after the new heaven and new earth we have this thing that says in the new creation before you call i will answer that's how close god's going to be if you call out and wait for an answer the moment you call god before you even call god's going to answer he'll be so intimately dwelling with us in his full presence the other thing about Revelation 21 that's fascinating, it says that the old heaven and old earth had passed away. So this makes some people think that God's going to demolish the cosmos and kind of put a replacement one there. But if you look at the, the, that language of the old passing away, it's also found in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. Look, the new has come. Everything's become new. So if you become a Christian, does God obliterate you and put a, a doppelganger in your place? No, the extreme language of the old passing away and the new coming is actually describing a process of transformation, what we call sanctification. Well, guess what? It's not just people that will be sanctified. The cosmos will be sanctified, too. You, in your book, talk about how the Christian church moved away from this restored earth, this Jewish-slash-Christian eschatology detailed in throughout the Bible, and they gradually moved over into what you describe as uh, Platonistic influences in the church, which substitutes a restored earth with a divine realm. So can you talk a little bit about that transformation in Christian eschatology? That's, that's a complex phenomenon. but um, So it's pretty clear from biblical studies that um, eschatology is this worldly. And when you start to read the church fathers in the second and third century and so on, you see that they're trying hard to reconcile the disworldliness of the biblical vision of the future with what is becoming the, the philosophical framework that Christians are taking on. And that's the framework of Plato. Uh, the philosophical systems of the, of the time of the early church, including Platonism, Aristotelianism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, but Platonism and Aristotle together, maybe, were the kind of most intellectually rigorous, interesting kind of framework to help people think about the world. And Christians started to be to absorb that. And what Platonism said was ultimately reality can be divided into two categories. That is the, the mortal realm of sensory perception, physicality, and change, and the divine realm of ideas, rationality. And Plato actually thought that every human being is composed of these two, the mortal and the divine. Now, Christians wouldn't like that. But by the time we got to the third century AD, the Neoplatonic philosopher, who's a pagan named Plotinus, had a version of Platonism where he said, yes, rationality and ideas which are invisible, they're, they're divine, uh, it's a divine realm that we can't see. You can't see an idea, right? Uh, that's important, but there's something beyond that. And Plotinus was a mystic. Get these experiences where he was carried beyond rationality into some ethereal realm where he touched the core of the universe. And he wasn't just you know, a personal theist. He didn't really believe in a personal God, but he had these experiences. And Christians started to use these ideas to speak about the goal of life is to transcend physical reality and even rational thinking to some, quote, spiritual realm. Where spiritual in the Bible never refers to something immaterial. It may or may not be immaterial. It refers to the power of God for transformation. And that's why the body in the resurrection can be a spiritual body. It doesn't mean a body composed of immaterial substance. 
is a body energized by the spirit. So it's a resurrection body, a body that has overcome death. But Christians began to reinterpret things through this model that the goal of life was to transcend the physical and even the rational and to get to some immaterial realm. So they began to, to have this idea that, well, maybe we need to go beyond the physical in the eschaton. Now what's really interesting is in the Old Testament, if you read carefully, you'll see that the, the ancients, both the Israelites and the people around them, picture the earth as sort of like a building. There's a lot of analysis of this. The earth has a flat surface where the floor of the building. There is a roof, it's called the heavens or the, the firmament, and that roof is held up by pillars, which are mountains at the edges of the earth. And it goes on, it's a building analogy, and that is that God is in the upper story of the building, and God wants to dwell with us in the lower story, but we've got to get rid of sin first, that we can dwell with God. But this world is meant to be habitable. It's a building. But when we get to the New Testament, and just after the New Testament, Christians start to pick up on the Greek idea that the world is a sphere. It's, it's, it's round. And around the Earth are the planets. There's the, the Moon and the Sun and Venus and Jupiter and Mars and Mercury and Saturn. So there's these seven realms, and there are different distances from the Earth. So there are seven heavens. How about the third century AD? It becomes really standard in Christian theology. But you know what? You read these church fathers, and you know what they mean by going to heaven? They mean you have to go up past the Moon, past Mercury and Mars and the Sun and Venus and Jupiter and Saturn to the realm beyond that where God lives. That's what they actually mean. Now, most Christians today would never think of it that way. But that's where you read the church fathers. That's what they mean by going to heaven. It's not till the modern period when we start to look through telescopes and say, oh, no, we can actually spot that there's moons around Jupiter and that our moon has craters and so on. But clearly God cannot be in that heaven. So where is God? And then they had this platonic notion of an immaterial realm to draw on. And this, you start to get the idea at the end of the Middle Ages, early modern period, that heaven is an immaterial dimension. That is an idea never found in the Bible. And what's worse is now we change it from heaven being part of creation, God made heaven and earth, to heaven being an uncreated divine dimension. That is absolutely unbiblical. But it's become almost orthodoxy among many Christians who don't realize just how unbiblical it is. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, reading the Dodds book, Pagans and Christians, Age of Anxiety, and then he talks about how this concentric uh, reality works, where in Aristotelian ideas, you got those different planets, and the farther out you go, the more closer to perfection you become. And so once you pass all the planets, then you start entering the realm of the unchangeable, but it was all part of this mm -hmm. universe, and then Platonism deviated from this. It began to take over Neoplatonism through Plotinus and others. So it's it's very interesting yeah. stuff and it's very technical stuff. So you really have to read it to understand what Augustine yeah. and other church fathers are talking about when they're talking about these these Platonic concepts that we're just not very familiar with. But the, the way it's come down to us, and it, this is really relatively simple, it's, it's a fundamental question. Is redemption meant to restore life to the way it was meant to be? Or is it meant to take us out of this world to some other reality? To me, that's the fundamental question. And, and you can you don't even understand the details of paganism to get that there's two different ways to think about this. And they result in two different kinds of life. If redemption is the restoration of this world, 
That has all kinds of implications for how we are to live. But many Christians don't really care about life in this world because they have bought into the notion that redemption takes us away from this world to something else, to something otherworldly. I mean, that is a heresy that we need to get back to the biblical truth. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So we're almost out of time. We've got a couple questions left. I'll ask you this one because this is uh, something that I'm presented with often by critics of mine, whether they be Calvinist or Arminian. How would you answer this question? Was the crucifixion a necessary event? So was the crucifixion a necessary event? Part of the answer depends on what you mean by necessary. Um, in philosophy, we talk about ideas that are necessary truths or contingent truths. So two plus two is four is a necessary truth. It's always that way. It doesn't not dependent upon anything, although it is dependent upon being able to count it, perhaps. Maybe. <laughs> but um, a contingent truth is the fact that um, you know Jesus was born in Galilee uh, as a Jew. You know, if he had been born 100 years earlier or later, he may have had a different um, physical location. It, it, in a fundamental sense, the crucifixion is an event in history, and it was not necessary from the beginning. I think God's purpose had always been to, to come to dwell with humanity. So mm-hmm. there's a sense in which the incarnation could be viewed as a necessary event. The word is going to become flesh, one way or another. God is beginning to enter into human history through the Exodus and through the, the temple and the tabernacle, and ultimately in Christ and in, in, in the church, and He's going to his full presence will be here in the end. But the crucifixion is a response to sin. It is what was needed, in a sense, it was, quote, necessary to bring redemption. But without sin, you wouldn't need the crucifixion. You could have had an incarnation without a crucifixion. So that's my short answer to that very complex question. I think it's a very, very good answer. Before our podcast ends, uh, you had mentioned in email that you had a conversation with the late Clark Pinnock in which you had briefly discussed the ideas of open theism, and he and possibly yourself came to the conclusion that you are friendly to open theism or an open theist yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that conversation you had with him? Yeah, um, so I've given a paper um, on Genesis 1, looking at the way God exercises power, which is not a very unilateral deterministic way. It's an inviting way that involves kind of a uh, it allows creatures to have their own place in the world, and God is dialogical in that relationship. And I talked about that using rhetorical analysis of literary details in the text. And by the time I finished my exposition of Genesis 1, he said, I think you're an open theist. And I said, what's that? Because this was two years after the term open theist had been coined. I'd never heard it before. Mm-hmm. So he explained, and, and so I, there's a certain sense in which the Bible portrays God as giving humans and the created order real freedom to interact. So to that sense, I'm an open theist. The problem with open theism as a philosophical position for me is that it it reduces God, it can reduce God to one cause among many in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I want, so using biblical language or anthropomorphic, God is speaking to us and God is interacting with us. And the Lord said, and Abraham responded, and God said, and God said, now I know that you are a God-fearer. So you know, God is working in time as one actor among others. But on the other hand, when you think about the physical universe, um, I'm not a deist. I don't believe God wound up the world and let it go independently. God is at work supporting all physical processes. So God is not just one cause among many. God is the underlying cause of all things 
This is what the medievals called concurrent view of God's um, power. So God's mm-hmm. always at work in every. So philosophically, I want to say I'm not an open theist in some ways, but using biblical language, I sound like an open theist. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You're writing a new book. Uh, can you tell us when that's going to be out and what that is about? Um, I can't tell it when it'll be out because no one knows the day or the hour. <laughs> um, I'm writing a book on prayer, and my I'm writing it through using two primary biblical passages. The first is Genesis 22, Abraham's attempt to sacrifice Isaac, known in Jewish tradition as the Akedah, from the, the, the Hebrew word Akkad, he bound Isaac and put him on the, on the altar. Uh, it's the binding of Isaac, it's known as. And the other text is the book of Job. And one of the issues is that many Christians use the notion of Abraham's offering of Isaac to say, don't ever question God, just do whatever God says, no matter how crazy it seems, which I think is a very bad use of that text. Mm-hmm. And the book of Job has a lot of connections to Genesis 22 and to Abraham in general, which I won't get into right now, but all kinds of links. There's one that's really important. There is a phrase you probably know in the Bible, dust and ashes. You've heard that phrase? Yeah, absolutely. It only occurs on the lips of Abraham and on the lips of Job. That phrase is never used elsewhere. Abraham used it once. Job used it twice. And many other connections, too. And Job is like a Gentile version of Abraham, a, a Gentile patriarch from somewhere outside of Israel. And Job is, in a sense, responding to the Abraham story because Abraham is someone who fears God because he does exactly what God says without even questioning it. Job is a person who also says to fear God, but he questions God. So can you fear God and accept that you're just dust and ashes? You're not anybody. You're not God. You're, you're a mortal creature. Does God take our prayers seriously, even our doubts, even our anxieties? And my framing of this study of prayer is the Old Testament, the Psalms of lament. About, about one-third of all the Psalms are people questioning God and asking why and bringing their, their deepest anxieties to God and putting them directly before him, and God accepts that. And then you have the prophetic position with Moses, the primary prophet, who, when God says, I'm going to destroy Israel for the golden calf, but I'm not quite angry enough yet to destroy them. Give me a moment till I get angry. God is saying, you got a little opening here, Moses. What are you going to do? And Moses said, you can't destroy them. And in a series of four different intercessions, he gets God to not destroy Israel, to forgive them, but he brings judgment upon the evil ones. And the covenant continues because of God's graciousness to Moses. And later on in Psalm 106, we're told that God would have destroyed them had not Moses stood in the breach and defended them. And in the later prophets, all defend the people. They bring the word of God, bringing judgment, but then they defend the people to God and say, don't destroy them yet, Lord. Give them time to repent. Until in Ezekiel, there's this very interesting passage that says, I looked for someone to stand in the breach, but there was no one. So I had to bring judgment. So why did Abraham not protest God's command to kill his own son? Why did he not intercede for his own son? Is that really the optimal way you, you can live? That's what my book is about. Prayer, honest prayer to God. Is that a righteous thing, a faithful thing? Or should we just always obsequiously you know, bow before God in submission and just do whatever we think he says? Or does God want that allowed? 
Yeah, that sounds really good. I mean, I I love these protest psalms where they're almost accusatory towards God. Why are you doing this, God? Why is this happening? Why are you hiding your face from me? And there's such emotion in those prayers. I was going to say, one of my interesting questions is, suppose God had told Moses to sacrifice his son. I wonder what he would have said. Yeah, absolutely. So I I look forward to this book coming out. I'll definitely read it, and maybe we could do a podcast interview about that book as well. I'd like to thank uh, my guest, Richard Middleton, for uh, today's conversation. If anyone has any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the Facebook page, God is Open. Thank you for listening. 